0: Welcome uh, to another edition of Mongo Spaces this fr- Friday. I know it's an early one, but we hope to have a good time here as we try to discuss car in general. On every Friday, we try to have a good conversation around business and markets and the economy. And today we are very privileged to have VJ here, the CEO of car in general. for those of you who don't know CAR in general very well, we hope by the end of this session, we're able to know as much as you can about it. And definitely it's one of the best performing stock in the past year, up around uh, 555% in terms of total return. Uh, So we hope to delve deeper into the business model, the history, the essentially also to understand how the CAR in general runs its business and some of the products that it uh, produces. So without further ado, let me welcome the CEO, Vijay. Uh, Vijay,
1: maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself and how the day has been. Okay, great. Thank you very much. I'm fundamentally a lawyer by profession. I joined CAR in general in 1996 when I became MD, then um, I I later became CEO in 2016. And it has been quite a journey. We've seen quite a huge transformation taking place over the last 20 years.
0: Great. Uh, So maybe you can tell us a bit about what a CEO does at Cannes General. general. What are the day-to-day
1: activities that you do over there? Well, right now, I mean, because we've uh, sort of crossed a critical threshold, we have fairly strong management teams. So today, for example, I wouldn't necessarily get involved in the day-to-day running of any business. I have to say we've got a really great sort of group of managers uh, who run their own businesses. And I would kind of... uh, contribute from a strategic perspective or a crisis perspective so those would be my two key roles and of course we're looking at new initiatives all the time and we're engaged with those all the time and at a very high level we have very close dealings with many suppliers to ensure that we get the right treatment and get the right priorities it's quite high level right now for me which is nice and what's also great is that, as I said, it's a great young team of managers who, who have a, a great deal of scope to grow, I think, so long as we continue to grow our business and perform. So that would be my day in a nutshell. So there's nothing fixed. I don't have a fixed routine at the office. We have board meetings every quarter. We have review meetings every month. So those are relatively fixed. But apart from that, as I said, it's pretty strategic and fairly sorting out issues that may arise during the course of the, the job, really.
0: You said you've been uh, at Car General for a long while, so perhaps you can map out for us maybe your career path a bit of a thumbnail schedule. What led you to Car and General yourself, and why you've stayed this long?
1: Okay, so as I said, I've been I've been at Car and General for many years, and uh, what led me to Car in General was really based on the fact that at that time we had a minority interest in Car in General. When I came back to Kenya after having practiced law in England, it was felt that uh, given the experience that I had that I, I could contribute to the affairs of the business. And why I've been there so long is because when I took over in 1996, we essentially sold all our businesses. We were in retreading, we were in brake pad manufacturing, we were in spark plug manufacturing, we were in gumboot manufacturing, many different manufacturing businesses. And between 1996 and 1999, we sold all those businesses, every single one of them. And then, basically, at that point in time, we thought it'd be a good idea going into the motor vehicle business. So we went into the Fiat and Alfa Romeo franchise. And I remember traveling to Italy and convincing Fiat to give me the Alfa Romeo franchise and managed to do that. But it wasn't a very successful venture, simply because we could not get to the right level of volume in what was a very niche product. Then after that, in 2003, I guess our big break came when when I was walking around Uganda. I saw the Japanese motorcycles, uh, which were border borders at that time in Uganda. And basically, I felt there was an opportunity to convert those Japanese motorcycles, which were secondhand, into new motorcycles of a higher quality. And that was really the beginning of the journey. And so we did that. We did it very successfully, built a fairly large business, and then started replicating the same in Kenya. Then, of course, we also looked at the three-wheeler business. Again, there was no real market for three-wheelers. So, we managed to create a three-wheeler market business in Kenya, which again replicated itself in Tanzania. Uh, And then we were very fortunate to sort of also find the Cummins business, which was very much at the beginning of its journey. And we managed to scale that up over a period of time. And with these businesses come fairly large aftermarket businesses. And these aftermarket businesses basically flourished as the unit businesses flourished. And then, of course, we went into Dusan, Toyota. Kubota and we eventually did a joint venture with Cummins in 2017. It's been a very active period is really what I'm trying to say Uh, and that's why I've been there so long I guess (laughs) and we continue to look forward and see what else we can be doing and adding value to people having impact on a large population and continue to grow our business. So there's a lot of work ahead of us still.
0: I've studied a bit the business model of Cummins, and it's one of the most uh, intriguing businesses out there also. I think a friend of Warren Buffett is the one who did an analysis on Cummins in a while back. So perhaps at some point you can also share some of the business, maybe ideas, or at least the kind of wisdom that you've drawn from some of these companies. So I want to start though with the car general itself. What does car general do? uh, And why does
1: it have the name car general as it is? That's a good question. So it has the name car in general because we started 85 years ago in cars, car equipment, and general equipment. We were never in cars. In fact, I introduced cars to car in general. But we were in car equipment and general equipment. And as a result of that, we were called car in general, as in car in general equipment. And that name basically persevered. And until I sold everything, that was exactly what we did. So from 1936, when we started, right through in 1996, we used to sell car equipment and general equipment. uh, And that's why we maintain the name car in general. Now, when you look at what car in general does, we're obviously in the automotive space with the two-wheeler, three-wheeler and other equipment business, but also we're in several other businesses, which have grown quite substantially. We're in the real estate business. We're in the financial services business. We're in the poultry business. And we've now gone into helmet manufacturing. So when you look at the transition it's happened relatively quickly but the name car in general is very old so we'll keep the name car in general it's got a very high brand equity and so there's no real reason to change it and there is some relevance to what we do today with our name i think we haven't lost that relevance and that relevance will continue i think going forward
0: it's considered you they invested a lot of businesses and and also focused on other areas What informs the exit or entry into particular segments of the market? What kind of analysis do you do are entering the market and maybe when you're there and what informs when you exit and and perhaps you could give us a a few examples of what made you at a particular point in time, exit a particular business and then maybe enter another, like now you're
1: entering Helmetman. Great, thanks. That's a good question. That's the critical question for us. So why did we exit all those businesses? Some of you may be too young to recall, but like in 1992, the liberalization of Kenya took place. And what we saw as a result of that was that a lot of the manufacturing industries we were in were going to come under some very serious pressure. And they did come under very serious pressure. So in 1996, if you look at our balance sheet, we declared a thumping loss. And we had these businesses which were now competing against the big Chinese industries, the big Indian industries. So if you're producing gumboots, for example, or producing spark plugs, can you produce gumboots, spark plugs, retread tires more competitively than you can buy a Chinese tire or buy a Chinese gumboot? And the absolute answer to that question was, no, you could not. And, and as a result of that, we felt that if we continued in those businesses, our business was going to collapse. As it was, we were in fairly serious trouble at that time. And we really felt we had to exit those businesses whilst we still had some value to avoid a collapse. So basically, that was the reason we exited those businesses. So why did we go into these other businesses? So we go into businesses based on several key parameters. One is that it has to be a large enough addressable market. And that has been a key learning for us. The market we enter must be big enough to be able to build a sustainable business. The second question we ask ourselves is can we play in a leadership position in that market? So, and our, our objective really is to be number one or number two, nothing less. So we really struggle being number three. So we need to align ourselves in a manner that, you know, allows us to become number one or two in the market. And the third thing we've also realized over time is that it must be a fundamentally cash based business. So we must really be able to sell our products in cash. We don't want to be doing these huge turnovers selling on credit. So being a cash based business is a third critical fundamental and basically. Those are three very key questions we ask ourselves. Four is, is it a sustainable business? Is it going to last over a period of time? We'll not go into a business where we think there's a short shelf life, maybe five years. It's got to be a business that we feel can basically face the trials of time. That's another complicated question when you look at how quickly businesses are transitioning today. So again, that's a very important question for us. So and then the fifth question really is, what's the impact of the business we're entering into? And can it ultimately have a great deal of good? If you look at the industries we play in, there are 1 million border-border riders, for example. You know, they feed 6 million people a day. They're 3.4% of GDP. You know, so when you look at those kind of numbers, what you're really looking at is a sustainable business. Yes, it may change over time, but the market's not going to run away in a hurry. Those are five critical questions we'll ask ourselves. And if we can answer positively to those five, then we feel we're in the right business.
0: Great stuff. I actually managed to get a copy of the 1996 container report, and actually did report a loss back then.
1: I think it was 103 million shilling loss, if I remember rightly. It's 106 million shillings. loss. It was many years ago. It was like 25, 26 years ago. I'm surprised I even got close, but yeah, I remember that.
0: What I'm surprised with the most is about building a cash-based business. So perhaps you can explore that and what informs that. Are Canadians so worthy that you don't want to give them credit? Or do do you not want the stress of having to follow up in terms of payments?
1: And that's it for me. You look at all the great businesses in the world. Look at Apple. Look at Amazon. Look at Google. Look at Coca-Cola, if you go more sort of. You talked about Cummins earlier. Every great business has control over its cash flow every great business, and the greatest businesses churn tons of cash. You look at Apple's balance sheet, you look at Google's balance sheet, I mean, Apple's got in excess of 150, 200 billion in cash, you know? So the point is that to build a great sustainable business that can remain sustainable and competitive, it needs to be a business that's really generating cash. What we've seen in the credit businesses that we've entered into is that it becomes very difficult to control our cash flows. They're not predictable. You're relying on someone to pay you, right? And then if he says, I'm going through tough times, wait, what are you gonna do? You're gonna assume Fine, that'll take another couple of years. So at the end of the day, being a cash business is really important. Now it's not easy to find a cash business. To be a real cash business, you've gotta one be a business with a competitive advantage that says you can pay me cash, right? Otherwise, you can't have my product. So that's actually the highest hurdle of all to cross, if you ask me. That cash business one is the highest hurdle to cross because there are not so many businesses that have that strong a competitive advantage that you have complete control on your cash flow, particularly not in the space we play in. We don't want the headache of having to collect cash. That's number one. And number two is we don't want the unpredictability of having to collect cash because then, of course... You don't have control on your cash flow. That's fine if you're a mature business, but if you're a fast-growing business, it's absolutely unsustainable. Maybe you can map out for us the business segments a little bit. Uh, I know
0: you talked about the products. Maybe map out the s- segments, and I know there's a very interesting part of the business called what to Credit. And maybe you can expound on that a little bit.
1: So if, if you look at our segmentation, it's automotive and equipment distribution, which is our logistics business, bringing product in and selling it. So that's our automotive and equipment distribution business. We have the financial services business where Wa2 sits and which is our associate, which I'll talk about in a minute. And in that financial services business, we have a leasing business, which is fundamentally for forklifts. We don't lease other products, but we want to grow the forklift leasing business. Right now, we've got 100 forklifts on lease. We'd like to get that to closer to 1,000. Then we've got the real estate business. So if you look at our balance sheet, you can see that we have a real estate investment property business. Now, what an investment property business means is real estate held for investment purposes. In other words, not for our own use. And if you look at our balance sheet, it's sitting at about 3.5, 3.6 billion, which is investment property held as real estate investment. We have the poultry business, which is in Tanzania, which is a day-old chick farming business. And then finally, as you've said, we've got the manufacturing business, which is our current helmet business, which is what we started producing. I think we started producing in September last year and we're looking to make some progress in that business over the course of this year. Coming to Watu, you said it's a very interesting business. It's an absolutely fascinating business. Again, it was driven by need, right? So when we invested in Watu, we were really looking at the model for financing in the border border sector. And the model for financing at that time was that a a sort of a professional would buy a motorbike, give it to a rider, say, you give me 500 shillings a day, and you can keep the rest. So what we said, was there must be an opportunity to finance that so that the border border rider can own the product rather than the professional owning the product and receiving a lease income on it. And um, so we launched that so that instead of paying a professional 500 shillings a day, you paid an installment of actually less than 500 shillings a day and eventually ended up in ownership. And you still had the upside benefit which was any income above that 500 for argument's sake. So, of course, that was a a space we filled, again, and it's been a tremendously successful business. There's no question about it. And the beauty about the Watu business, it's a one Africa business. It's very portable. We feel that there's a huge amount of scope to grow that business with a very strong management team, which we currently have, uh, into a business of very significant scale. So when you talk about it being a very interesting business, We see it as an extremely interesting business for us at the moment.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the manufacturing business, which you just entered into. I tested some of your products. uh, I'll try to see a picture soon. Uh, I mean, the helmets are very, very good. What informed your business decision to enter this market? Given that, the general tendency is that most people don't care about safety of the border borders. But when I tried using your products, it was really good, very comfortable. I can carry it around once I'm done with my border border rides and then just walk around as if I'm a biker myself, uh, but I'm not explained to you as a business model there and
1: what informed you to go into this? Well, first of all, let me take it one step further back. And, and that, what I would say is that we are committed to the industrialization of, the, of, of one East Africa and Kenya. We're totally committed to that. And what we've also discussed with the government is how we can manufacture 40 to 50% of motorcycles in Kenya, right? So that was a journey we'd already embarked on. So that is something we're committed to. We feel it's the only way we're going to become a developed nation. So industrialization for us as a business is a critical impact parameter. Uh, So what informed us to go into helmets was that we basically were approached again by a young team, like we were approached with Watu. And this young team said, we think making helmets in Kenya is a good idea. So what we said is, one, it has to be globally competitive. So that was number one. And two, for our conscience, it had to be a high quality product to ensure the safety of our riders. The safety of our riders are an absolutely critical plank of our overall sort of thought process. So once we were convinced that those two parameters were met, we said in that case, we now need to import substitute. So in other words, if we're buying a globally competitive product, which we're importing, but if we can make it locally, then it makes sense for us to make it locally. And the reality is the beauty about this is that that high quality product you were trying Eric is a globally competitive product, actually cheaper than the globally competitive product. So I'm looking at quality for quality, right? And we're very happy that we can basically buy a product and manufacture a product locally that is quality-wise as good as anywhere in the world and competitively as good as anywhere in the world from a pricing perspective. And of course, you've also got the additional benefit of easier logistics for local purchasers. It doesn't need foreign exchange. So the overall economic benefit of doing that is huge. And it's something that we would like to continue to expand even in other areas of our business. So it was a big one for us and we're very happy with the results that we're seeing right now. So this is locally manufactured, right? 100% locally manufactured, 100%. You should come and do a tour of our factory. It starts with pellets. It's pellets. So it's hundred percent locally manufactured. I'd say that our, our value addition is, is like over 50, 60%. So it, it's huge. There's nothing assembly in, in this. This is pure local manufacturing. It's massive. I'm sharing a picture of one of the helmets that I used.
0: So perhaps you can tell us what did it take to set up this business locally in terms of sourcing mm-hmm. for the raw materials that you need to produce this? Getting the expertise, putting in place an entire uh, ecosystem and finally producing the product and trying to get a market for it. How's has it been?
1: So far, I think the journey has been, you know, very successful. The starting point of this whole thing was having faith in the team that we were investing in. That was the starting point. That was critical because there's no way I know anything about manufacturing a helmet. So have, investing in the team that was, was looking to set this up was, was a very critical point. And we were very lucky. I think we found some very good people during the setup process. We imported machinery from all over the world, actually, but a lot of the extrusion machinery came from China, but the machinery is from all over the world. We import the raw materials from all, all over the world and they're base raw materials, right? They're base raw materials. And then we've trained everyone. So if you go to the factory, you'll see 200 people, maybe 40 to 45% of them are ladies, women, assembling helmets from scratch. It's been quite a journey, and we've done it pretty quickly. We started, I think, in January. Our first production came out in September last year. And in terms of the ecosystem, the ecosystem, of course, is us, because we were buying helmets, right? We supplied two helmets with every motorbike. So we were the first part of the ecosystem. But the minute everyone saw the quality of our helmet at that price point, a lot of people said, actually, it makes sense to buy this helmet rather than buy another helmet. Because, as I say, globally competitive. And there's no protection. We've not even asked for protection. We've not said, give us a duty differential. There is zero duty on helmets. So the objective was to be globally competitive and compete on global terms. And that's exactly what we're doing. And it's a huge sense of pride, I think. But for me personally, the fact that we're globally competitive in Kenya is a huge sense of pride. What's the pricing range? So maybe you can talk about the pricing and the
0: response from the border, border riders or the people that you've tried to sell to.
1: Okay. The pricing range is from 535 upwards, right? 535 shillings plus VAT upwards, depending on the quality you're looking at. But even the 535 shilling helmet is a very high quality helmet. But to give you a real analogy, as CNG, we're buying the helmet from border plus at an arm's length basis because we got fixed pricing right? It's between 650 and 680 plus VAT, right? For the high quality helmet. We used to import that high quality helmet, exactly the same quality, maybe slightly less quality at 740 to 780. That was our landed cost before we had any other costs on it or margin on it. So that I think is the key factor. What we're buying today at 650 to 680 is the equivalent of what we were importing at 740 to 780. And I think that's what speaks volumes. And in terms of quality, just have a look. There are videos circulating everywhere on social media about our helmet against the Chinese helmet. You throw that Chinese helmet onto the ground, it smashes into pieces. You can't break our helmet. We've given it to border borders and said, break this helmet. And they haven't been able to break it. And I'm sure you've seen those helmets. And the border. Rider who was driving
0: me around. He was super impressed himself and, and yeah. actually was very surprised by the pricing itself, very, very surprised I would say. I not surprised. We're glad to be joined by someone here would also ask a question. Big boy, Trev, did you have a question?
2: Hi, good evening guys. Thanks for just inviting me uh, to this space. Mine is more of a comment. I was lucky enough to cover uh, the Border Plus uh, factory. And I documented it on a video that was aired last Sunday on KTN Home. And I can tell you without a doubt that the level of investment at Border Plus is mind-blowing. The fact that you're able to make high-quality helmets at an affordable price, I think, should be a running call for the border border industry to just think about it. Because whatever we have, and we actually had tests comparing the quality of imported versus what is made here, is is good. And you've seen the number of border border incidences, people die. Like this is serious. And the level at which border plants have taken that initiative to build that high quality helmet, I think is a starting point for additional road safety and looking forward towards the East African community now that we have even Congo. We know we have a bike riding culture in Uganda, very strong, in Congo, in Tanzania. So I mean, clients in general have a lot uh, to cover ground, but my question would be, and ideally, this is uh, targeted at Vijay. Hi, Vijay. In terms of having border border safety, are you planning to start a campaign soon in a, in regard to creating awareness uh, to the border border industry on how safe these helmets are? Yeah, thank you, Trevor, and thanks for going to the factory as well.
1: So, yeah, in answer to that question, we already have a program on it, and it's not specific to our helmets as such. You know, what will happen with our helmets is that as soon as everyone starts buying them, which we think will happen pretty quickly, it'll happen during the course of the next few months, it'll speak for itself, right? It'll speak like Watu is now speaking for itself. Our helmet business will speak for itself. But what we are totally committed to is the general safety, not only of our border-border riders, but also of our border-border passengers and also for the road users at large. And that is another campaign on another level. And that's really the campaign that we're trying to spearhead. And with tracking, you know, capabilities of Watu, with our high levels of market share, that is something that we're very committed to. So that's a big focal area for us. The government has asked us to step in and help as well. And we are trying to work out how we're going to do that. But we definitely have the means to do that. So this is something that we are very committed to and we're hoping to be able to launch a campaign that can really make a difference in the course of the next few months.
0: On a general level, I think a couple of weeks ago when there was a strike on border borders, I think we had a spaces here about uh, the issues that are surrounding the border border business. And one of the key aspects that was mentioned was the number of accidents that keep happening. Uh, And I think it's a really good initiative that you have in terms of just trying to make sure that people are safe. Trev, did you have another question or that was all? That was all. Well done, guys, for creating more spaces. Let's do more of this. Thank you. Uh, Back to Vijay now. Vijay, uh, I know the other business, the three-wheeler business and the motorcycles business and the equipment business. So what's the current mix in terms of units sold and revenues for some of these businesses? And what is your experience in
1: these other businesses away from them? So our experience on these other businesses is that they've been stunted. So let me just put into perspective. So our our consumer business is probably today 80% of our business, right? And this is excluding Cummins, which is a joint venture. But if you look at our Doosan business, our tractor business, our Toyota business, those represent about 20% of our business. Now, and the reason is that those businesses are being stunted by the overall growth of the economy. So if you look at the statistics that relate to those products, earlier on, I talked about a big enough addressable market. The reason we went into those businesses was because we felt that the addressable market was going to grow and we wanted a first mover advantage. The reality is over the last six years, they haven't grown. So if you look at all those markets that I've just referred to, the forklift market, the construction equipment market, the tractor market, they've grown very marginally. And that has been the stunting factor for those businesses for us. We have high market share, but the markets are simply too small. But we're still committed to them. We're hoping that over the next 10 years, those markets will grow and that these will become scalable businesses as well. So from a strategic perspective, we're happy to hold on. But we do need the economy to grow at a much faster speed in order for these businesses generally to grow, given that the markets are too small at the moment. And we have very high market share in those markets.
0: All right. And how the business like across East Africa, I know you operate in, uh, in Tanzania, how has it been venturing into other countries? Are they receptive with the business more?
1: Yeah, very receptive. So if you look at Tanzania business, in spite of everyone that says, people say, talk about Tanzania, it's really scaled up. It's now a $50 million business at the end of 2021. Uh, you know, we think that's going to become a much bigger business in that in the years to come. Uh, so, you know, our business model there has been very well received. A Uganda business, it doesn't have a motorcycle business anymore. So that business has not had the same level of growth and is not at the same level of scale. But it's a great equipment and smaller consumer business. We've been very well received in those three markets and those markets are big enough. We did go into Rwanda. Rwanda is just too small a market to be profitable. So we pulled out of Rwanda. You talked about DRC. We'll certainly look at DRC because that's, again, a very large addressable market. So, yeah, our businesses in the regions have done very well. If you look at our balance sheet, you can see the segmentation analysis, you know, speaks for itself. So it's been a very positive journey. And uh, we just want to keep scaling these businesses up. We just want to get bigger and bigger and better and better, really.
0: And what are some of the formidable competitors
1: that you face in the market? So the formidable opponents are the same. So in the consumer segment, if we're doing TVS and Piaggio, it's Bajaj. If it's in the Cummins business, it's Caterpillar, FG Wilson, all the big brands. So we compete with all the big brands, and those are global brands. So uh, apart from Watu and Border Plus, where we have kind of our own bespoke product. The competition in all our other businesses are global. And it's all the big global brands. And what I'm happy to report is that we're number one or number two in all the key product areas for us. And we compete head-to-head. So it's always very interesting. There's never a dull moment. And what's your value prop in that sense then that distinguishes you from these other competitors? I think increasingly it's becoming execution, right? So when I look at our teams, we've got great teams and they're executing more and more rigorously and more and more disciplined. The product increasingly is becoming very similar. The quality proposition is very much the same. The value proposition between the top, top brands is very much the same. So ultimately, it boils down to execution, and when you're talking execution, you're talking distribution, you're talking being in every street, every town, you're talking about making customers smile in every street, every town. Those are execution issues. And if we get that right, then we'll build really big businesses.
0: There is There are a few comments on our thread. They're saying that they really want to visit your factory. So maybe you should make a huge invite and a huge party there to invite people to come and see uh, what you're building. Which is incredible,
1: so to speak. Very happy to do that. Very happy for anyone who's interested to come and see our factory. Great.
0: On franchising, you've talked about Pierre Gale, Cummins, and TVS. How does a franchising deal usually work out? And maybe you can tell us your experience in terms of dealing with brands that are as big as Cummins. I know Cummins is in the business of engines, so maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your experience in dealing with these multinationals in these areas.
1: So our experience with all the multinationals, one of the critical factors with dealing with any party that we do deal with is that we have to share a similar value ethos, value system. So with Cummins, with TVS, with Piaggio, our values are very aligned. Toyota, the forklift business, MRF, the tire business, our values are very aligned. And as a result, we've had great relationships right to the very top level. So obviously with Cummins, we've done a joint venture. The CEO of Cummins visited us three times here in Kenya. The CEO, not the Africa head, but the CEO, one of the top executives in the world, visited us three times. And then even with the Indian businesses like TVS, we've got a tremendous relationship with TVS. Again, the chairman and the CEO visited us uh, a few times and I have a quarterly meeting with them in Dubai at that level uh, simply to discuss how the business is moving. So our relations with all these businesses have been really positive. We've really enjoyed them. And at the end of the day, so long as we're aligned in terms of objectives, their objectives are always to be number one or number two in the market. So long as our market share is up there, as long as we're executing rigorously and in a disciplined manner, those relationships will remain positive. What is not possible is failing to perform and expecting a positive relationship. That doesn't happen in any relationship. So we have to perform, but assuming we perform and they perform as well in terms of product development and pricing and value proposition, then we have a great relationship. And so far, we've been very fortunate. we built some tremendous relationships.
0: How are those three businesses that you, you do franchising, It different from maybe the local dealerships? How is the structure different?
1: With Cummins, obviously, it's a joint venture, so they're invested in our business, right? They're a shareholder with us. With Alfa Romeo and Fiat, the structure was very similar. We had a distribution arrangement uh, with Alfa Romeo and Fiat, like we do with TVS, like we do with... Piaggio, like we do with MRF, like we do with Toyota, Kubota, all of them. We have distribution structures. Where the TVS and Piaggio relationship is slightly stronger is that when those businesses we are locally assembling and manufacturing, that's number one. And number two is that we are obviously their biggest financiers because of Watu. So those relations are naturally stronger than that. Watu, for example, will have a relation with TVS and Bajaj and all the big, big players in all the markets, not just the East African markets. So those are slightly stronger relationships as a result. But otherwise, the structure of the distribution business is exactly the same, except with Cummins, which is a joint venture. I hope that's um, clear enough. That
0: is clear. Um, but I know also like Cummins, one of their big new ventures is trying out how they can position themselves in regard to the growing trend towards electric vehicles. So perhaps what's your plan along those routes? Should we see maybe e-tuk-tuks, so to speak, coming up soon? Are there plans along that
1: or e-borders? Watch this space. I think you could be hearing about them as early as April today, this month, right? So we've already um, started the journey on the e-tuk-tuks and we're very committed to that. On the e-border border, we're working very closely with our suppliers to produce a product that's properly fit for market right now. The electric vehicles that are being manufactured are not fit for market. So we're also exploring that sort of investing locally to manufacture EVs. And, and that, again, is something that we're very committed to. So, and then, of course, with W2, the mathematics of an electric vehicle only work with Watt. So W2 is going to be a key disruptor in the electric vehicle space, uh, simply because it only works with financing because of the high capital cost of the vehicle. So I think we have to be at the center of this EV revolution. Otherwise, one, our business won't be sustainable. And two is, it may not even take off. (laughs) So we need to be at the center of it. And we're very committed to playing our role in transforming internal combustion engines into electric vehicle motors in order to play our part for the climate and play our part in the revolutionization generally of the automotive.
0: Yes, we have a... 20 more minutes, so perhaps I would ask if you are in the audience and wanted to ask a question, and you can post your question below, pinned tweets. I've seen a couple of questions and we are handling them as we go along. But you can also request to speak and then we can also allow you to ask your question. But also you can DM us and then you can ask your question. So perhaps one of the questions that has come in Vijay for you is about the poultry business. Why are you doing poultry in Tanzania and not in Kenya?
1: Well, that's a good question. And the reason that we're doing poultry in Tanzania and not Kenya, is that it's taken us a very long time to get our poultry business in Tanzania at the right level. Right now, we feel that we're beginning to understand it a lot better, and now it's becoming an increasingly successful business. The problem with taking so long to understand the poultry business is that we frankly missed the boat in Kenya. So in Kenya, you've got really large players like Kenchik, Sigma, and for us to enter the market and take them on, is going to be more effort than it's probably worth. So we'd rather uh, continue to expand our poultry business in Tanzania as a kind of standalone operation, achieve the right level of scale. Obviously poultry is a very scalable business and remain focused on that business. So that's really the reason why we haven't expanded to Kenya. That The effort to break into Kenya is going to be probably too big when we look at the returns that we might generate from doing.
0: And in real estate, you have the Nairobi Mega Mall. So maybe you can talk a little bit about your experiences in real estate. Do we have an oversupply of real estate in Nairobi,
1: you think? So I think we do have an oversupply of real estate. I think obviously we opened in the middle of COVID. I think we must've been one of the very few real estate businesses that opened in the middle of COVID, but that's what we did. We had to support our tenants. So when I look at the real estate business. What I would say for the real estate business is it's probably the riskiest business in our portfolio. And it doesn't sound risky because everyone likes to invest in real estate. But the reality is, real estate has a huge upfront cost. And yes, yes, you get your yields, which are at 10% or 12% of the upfront cost, including land cost. But if anything goes wrong in the meantime, those yields drop fairly drastically. And the return on capital then also drops fairly drastically. So my thinking on real estate is that it's a good business in terms of recurrent incomes, but you have to be very careful how you do it and we have to be very careful how we do it. We had another big retail development planned in Mombasa, again with a major anchor as a retailer, uh, and we said that we need to wait. We need to understand this business a little bit better before we really embark on it any further. So I'd say that the real estate business is a good business in terms of generating recurrent income External rental incomes last year were 150 million, which is very good. It's a recurrent income stream, but the reality is one has to be very careful when you're looking at new investments because the risk is high because the the money goes in first and it's big money. And if anything goes wrong, then you're going to struggle.
0: What kind of uh, learnings can you give for anyone who wants to venture into this space, especially the real estate business? Because it's very common, at least in Kenya, that once you have assembled a little bit of income, you want to buy a piece of property and maybe develop it up. So what are some of the things that you have learned on this space that you would uh, tell people to be careful about as they enter the space?
1: Okay, yeah, so what I would say is that one, you cannot load real estate with too much debt. That's number one. The real point I would like to make is that if we go into the real estate space in terms of more aggressively, we'd want to do it on as close to a risk-free basis as possible. That means pre-sales, pre-lets, top anchors, right? But even with all of that, we'd be very careful. We need to be sure that those anchors are going to be successful. So we need to be sure that the value proposition of that real estate is going to attract sustainable clientele to ensure long-term sustainability. So that sounds like a complicated answer, but the truth is it's a very complicated question. But my bottom line is it's got to be as risk-free as possible.
0: Great question, which has uh, come through us from one of our listeners is about the tax dispute with Kerry. I think there is a um, 667 million at stake. What's your take on that and how, how far along are you the, the solution of this dispute?
1: So it's a dispute over the classification of three wheelers in the industry at large. So every industry player was targeted. We're the biggest, we have 67% market share. So as a result, our number is the largest. And when you reclassify and impose an excise duty on the three-wheelers, which is what the KRA is trying to do, then obviously the number's fairly large. So where are we so far on that? We did go to the tribunal, the case was heard. We won the tribunal case and so did our other competitors win the tribunal case. But the KRA's appealed and it's now in the high court. And the reality is that it's a risk for the business. But the fact is the advice that we've received is that our case is strong and that we should be successful. And based on that advice, we'll continue to battle it out in the High Court and hope that we uh, arrive at the right decision. Definitely does. So, in terms of outlook for the future for
0: your business in general, what are some of the business areas that you explored that fit those five criteria that you shared with us that are interesting enough for you to explore right now and maybe you are
1: considering in the future? So on that basis, what we see is that our automotive and equipment distribution business will continue to grow fairly rapidly. Well, I would say rapidly, I mean, maybe at between 10 and 20% a year. So we're fairly positive about that. But when we're looking at the big plays, we, we think that the Watu business will continue to expand across the continent over time. We think that the helmet manufacturing business has scope as well given the fact that that's also currently an East Africa play, the whole of East Africa. So we see ourselves, hopefully we'll get the opportunity to expand the capacity so that we can supply the whole of East Africa. And then there's obviously the EV space, which we talked about earlier. And that's a space that we have to be committed to. So we're going to be certainly investing in that space fairly rapidly. And again, it'll fit the criteria that we're looking at over a period of time. And uh, so... I think when I look at it, in terms of new businesses, I'd say it's going to be Watu, Helmets, across East Africa, and the EV space. That, those are the three businesses we're currently looking at. But we may also look at other manufacturing opportunities that align to our motorcycle and three-wheeler businesses over time because we know we can feed it through the same ecosystem. But we haven't firmed up any plans to do that just as yet.
0: All right. And I'm in terms of the, the couple of questions that they're talking about, the excavators, the sand units that are seen all over, the orange ones. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the business and perhaps also the other businesses that you engaged in in terms
1: of watches and all gumming, right? So tell us a little so, more about the. Okay, so I'll tell you about the Dusan business. So we went to the Doosan business in 2014, 2015. You know, because the market has remained static, in other words, it hasn't really grown. It's been a battle for market share. Right now, what I'm happy to report is that our market share has grown to around 20%, uh, which is very significant in that space. We want to continue to grow it. 25% is normally our threshold. uh, So we want to keep pushing that barrier. And we think that if the market grows, because the economy grows with it, we think that's going to be a very big business for us. So right now, it's developed into, I would say, a decent-sized business, not a very big business, but we think it will develop into a very big business if it carries on. Uh, in the current trend. Then we have the Toyota forklift business. And I alluded to the leasing business. But again, even if you look at the unit sales of forklifts in Kenya, I mean, just to put it into perspective, the Kenya market consumes 300 forklifts a year. The South African market consumes 8,000 forklifts a year. There's just no comparison. you know. And, and the reality is that if this economy does perform, manufacturing does grow, then that forklift market will grow fairly rapidly with it. We feel a good leasing business, which I mentioned earlier. And if we can grow the sale of forklifts and the leasing of forklifts, then that'll be a very significant business for us going forward as well. So we have very high prospects and hopes for that business as well. We've got the best brand in the business. We've got very high market share. And we think that that'll scale up over time. Uh, you talked about the Garmin business. The Garmin business is a very small business for us. But we think it'll remain very small. Again, the market is not huge enough. The reason we went into Garmin really was because it went with our tractor business. It went with our outboard engine business, a tractor in terms of tracking distances, outboard engines in terms of fish finders. So that's why it was an interesting business. And now it's developing in terms of sports apparel, sports wearables, health wearables. So we think it'll continue to grow, but it's going to grow slowly. The addressable market is still too small. And I guess those are the small businesses for us which will grow over time doosan i think is already a big enough business but we think the leasing business the tractor business and the garment businesses are small businesses which will grow over time so the focal will be on our tire businesses oils businesses spare parts businesses which are already fairly significant businesses uh, and we think that those businesses will continue to grow with the population uh, as our population of vehicles grows
0: Another question that has come in is about maybe your position as CEO, then how do you equip yourself to be a a competent in terms of being, since you're in manufacturing, you're in all these businesses, how how do you equip yourself to be a, a good CEO? And then also what kind of advice do you have for people who want to explore being
1: in this business in the future? Being a good CEO is something that obviously one can sort of also learn a lot about. For example, what the key learnings for me will be from one sitting on other boards where we have great CEOs. So I'm involved in the equity group uh, in terms of board, board seats. And obviously, our, James Wang is a great CEO. The equity group is a very transformative business. I sit on several other boards. You learn a lot from people like I'm a member of the YPO Association, the YPO and w which is a global organization uh, of 19,000 members that controls $19 trillion of economy. So that's obviously a very significant business. So again, like for like peers. Uh, and you learn from experiences and you learn from them as well. And you also learn from educating yourself, business courses. So I sit on several business courses every year to see what best practices are. So global best practices, so several Harvard business case studies and some of the leading organizations in the world. So that also keeps you abreast. But at the end of the day, when you're a CEO running a great business, it's about having the right people in pace, having great processes, keeping Your team motivated to be better every single day, continue to innovate. It's about people management, so long as your fundamentals of business are good, right? So when you want to run a great business, you need a structure, a good structure, good culture, good processes. And the fact is, so long as you can tick all those fundamentals as a CEO, then you've got a good business on your hands. And it's not rocket scientist, but it's about managing the right people through the right strategies to build sustainable businesses. And the learning comes from everyone around you. It's a continuous process. You can never be a great CEO without continuing to learn. And I learned from great CEOs. So, so I'm continuing to learn and hopefully I'll one day emerge as a great CEO. So it's all work in progress.
0: All right. Someone is insisting. I asked you what advice you would give an aspiring CEO. So imagine a young VJ in 2000. Uh, what advice would you give to him?
1: So the advice I would give is not even business advice, apart from what I've already talked about. It would be advice that I've learned over time and what I try and live like. One is try and do the right thing every minute, every day. Two is stay in the present as much as possible because being a CEO is not easy. You go through very difficult times and if your mind drifts out of the present, it's going to be a very stressful time as well. So right thing every minute, every day. Stay present doing the right thing every minute, every day. Continue to educate yourself in terms of being able to make the right decisions. So it's this continuous education process, that curiosity for learning. That's a critical one. Because otherwise, how do you make the right decisions? And we still make mistakes. So that's a continuous process. And I guess the last is you can't be impatient with a business. You know, when we started setting up to run the business in 2003, when we were looking at new product lines, I said to the board, you've got to be prepared for a long haul. It could take 20 years to build a really great business. And, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos, funnily enough, said the same to the Amazon board. So the net result is it has to be patient. There has to be patience. And one has to be able to convince stakeholders that patience is necessary. So don't be impatient with the business. To build a sustainable business, sometimes one has to keep investing. It's not like it can be done overnight. So those are the four things I would say from my experience. And especially if you're trying to build a business. If you're trying to run a a business that's already built and you want to sustain it, just manage teams properly, stay curious, and just have the right strategy and culture in place. But I'm talking about building a great business. Then you really have to demonstrate the sort of things that I've just talked about in order to maintain your sanity and to build a great sustainable business.
0: Good stuff. I see the Flame Tree CEO, Harold Bangera is in the audience today. Um, thank you so much.
1: I'm sure you work together a lot because they we also is in the manufacturing business, right, Vijay? Well, actually, I've never met Harold to be honest. So, no, I've never met him. He probably has a different view to share with you. So maybe one of these days you can have him talking on this space. I mean, we had him earlier
0: on this space, uh, uh, okay. last
1: year. Okay, great.
0: Okay, very good. Uh, but I think you should meet. I'll try to connect both of you because uh, you've great. been on these basis also. But thank you so much,
1: Vijay. Any closing thoughts, perhaps? Any
0: words of wisdom that you want to throw out there as we
1: close? I mean, no real words of wisdom, to be honest with you. One just has to try and improve every single day. It's a mindset issue. It's not about big leaps. Over For us right now, it's about making sure that every day we wake up and as Jeff Bezos says, every day is day one. Try and improve every single day. Uh, And if we can do that, then we'll continue to build sustainability. And ultimately it's not about success. It's about sustainability. If you want a measure of a great business, build a sustainable business. Uh, And that to me is the true, true measure of a truly great business. But thank you very much. No, that's it. And thank you for those questions. So where can people find
0: you and your products? Uh, Maybe you can
1: pitch that in the last 30 seconds. Every street, every town. But if you want to see our head office, it's Lusaka Road, it's Mombasa, it's Kisumu, it's Nakuru, right of the town. But you'll find our products in every street, every town. That'll be friends and find them in the town that you're in. And please, those
0: helmets, please circulate like, them as widely as possible. You know, some of the safest things I've seen and
1: very cost effective. I'm hoping that you're gonna see it on every boda border boda's head in every street, every <laughs> town in the next few months, Eric. All right. Do you own Boda Plus? That's a separate entity. It's a separate entity. So there are other shareholders. Car in general, I think has 67%. But we have, we're very happy to have other shareholders. Actually, we're, it makes us very proud that we can work with other shareholders. So we have 67%. And so we're happy with that. We're actually very happy with that model, to be honest. Because We don't have to do all the work. It means other people can help us do the work. So it's a simpler model.
0: And uh, do you give our listeners some discounts? Should we expect some? Those who joined us on the <laughs> on helmets, yes, sure. Visit the factory and we'll give you a discount. How's that? All right, so All of you have been told to uh, visit the factory. Thank you, Vijay. Really, really nice. This is incredible. I've learned a lot about uh, myself and uh, I'm sure the audience also appreciates. So I hope to have you again soon after you declare another huge dividend again next year. And keep shining, of course, and we we keep cheering for local manufacturers.
1: Great. Thank you very much. And thank you for those great questions and for for the audience for listening. Thank you very much.
0: All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us on The Spaces today. So see you all again next week and enjoy the weekend. Uh Thank you very much.